Amen. Good morning. So uh, a few people here for the first time. So if you're here for the first time, you are jumping into the middle of our series in Proverbs. And so we're nearing the close of our series in Proverbs. Actually, we have two weeks left after this week. So uh, we're doing a thematic overview of the bulk of Proverbs, chapter 10 through chapter 30. This morning, we're going to be dealing with uh, two themes that we're connecting, the plans of the heart and contentment. Next week and the week following, we're going to uh, spend two weeks on Proverbs 31, uh, womanhood, femininity, marriage, those kind of things. But this morning, we're going to look at plans, where they come from, our heart, and contentment. And so initially, you may hear these two, and you're like, how did these two go together? But I don't think we realize how closely they are connected. So think for a moment, how often have you made big plans, fueled by desires, fueled by discontentment, and we repeat the cycle? We're trained, we're Americans, we're trained in the pursuit of happiness, and that pursuit, we assume, is always over there. Because my happiness can't be here My joy can't be here. My contentment can't be here. The grass must be greener somewhere else. And how much of our time and our effort do we spend chasing after mirages? And we think it's this oasis in the desert, and we get there, and it's just shiny sand and more of the same. And so I want us to think about this morning about our contentment. And we think about what it means to be happy what it means to be joyful, where we find our identity. Are we content where the Lord has us now, or are we always looking for something more, something additional, something that I can put together to make myself feel whole? So I don't know about you, but most of my weeks, pretty much all of my weeks, do not turn out what I imagine them to be. I have this great plan in my mind of all the things that I'm going to get done, and how often does that happen? I can look at my life. My life, I am not where I, where I thought I would be. Many of you ask me, how did you get here and be a pastor and all that? If you would have asked me seven years ago, what would you be doing in seven years? I would not have planned this for myself ever, ever. But I would not want to be anywhere else. My plans didn't work out. Thank God they didn't. I had a lot of plans. I had a lot of great ideas of what I was going to be doing and all the things that I could do for God in my own strength. And um, thankfully, he didn't give me what I wanted. He put me where he needed me. Um, And that should be an encouragement to all of us. As we think about this sermon this morning, we think about our planning and our contentment. God is sovereign, and he has you where he needs you. So it may be big things, it may be little things. Um, A lot of you are teachers or you're homeschoolers or you're in school for the first time. I'm the husband of a teacher. And I know how important planning is. But how often do the circumstances of our lives and kids line up with what we've we've planned? Almost never. And so we're going to get into some of those things this morning. But underneath it all, I want you to think about how much expectation you put on your plans. And how much does your contentment influence your decision-making? Are your decisions made and your plans made because you're discontent? Or do they come out of contentment? And, even a better question, will you still be content if your plans don't work out the way you think that they should? 
Are we grateful for what we have, or are we so consumed with what we don't that we can never be content? How would our planning be different if we stopped before we made any plans, before we had any big ideas, before we had hopes for the future, and we praise God for where he has us right now? If we thank God for what he's doing right now, instead of thinking that we can add something more. And so before we get into our text in Proverbs, I want you to ask yourself, do you find your contentment in Christ? The song we just sang, all I have is Christ. Do you find your contentment in his provision? Or are you always holding out for something more? Um, I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. As Jesse said, we start every uh, Lord's Day morning next door in the fellowship hall, and uh, we pray together, and we take of the Lord's table together, and I opened us up with this text from 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is especially important in a culture like ours that is consumeristic, but this is the same temptation for man all throughout history. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness... With contentment is great gain. These two ideas, a life that honors God, a life that is content in God, that is wealth. That is great gain. Because as Jesus tells us, we can gain the whole world. But if it's at the price of our soul, it is utter loss. And Paul leans in a little bit further here in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So here's a question as we get into planning and contentment this morning. How much of your hope, your peace, your identity is tied with things that you can't take with you? Because if we're honest, verse 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Amen. I wish we were. But how often do we fail to be content when the Lord gives us everything we need, yet all of our wants are self-centered and draw us away from him? Paul goes on, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. We've used that snare imagery a lot in Proverbs. What catches an animal And won't let them go into many senseless and harmful desires. We're going to talk a lot about desire this morning. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is amoral. It is without moral good or evil. But the love of it, the love of anything that draws your desires away from Christ, the beckoning of anything that calls you to seek it more than you seek the Lord, that is evil. That is an idol. And if you love anything that much, it is through this craving, Paul says, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we're going to look at that this morning, the things that drive us away and where we find our contentment and what does godly planning look like. So let's pray, and then now get us into Proverbs. Lord, we praise you this morning. (laughs) 
how awesome it is that your plans are perfect because ours are anything but. Lord, forgive us when we put our hope in our plans and our hope in our ideas and we fail to put our hope and our trust in you. Lord, forgive us when we are lulled into thinking that this world is our only home. That we make ourselves so comfortable here that we can't fix our eyes on eternity. For those of us who know you, Lord, we know that that's where our hope is. We, we know that our life is in the everlasting bliss of being with our Savior. But we try to insulate ourselves and find our comfort and peace with the things of this world. And they let us down time and time again. And there are people in this room who do not know you. They may be deluding themselves to think that they do, that they made a, prayed a prayer one time, they were baptized at some point, but they know nothing of the life to come. They know nothing of the peace that passes understanding. They know nothing of their only hope. Lord, I pray this morning that you would remove the scales from eyes and the idols from hearts, that you would use your word to bring the dead to life. And those who live, to live abundantly because their contentment and their joy is in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Chapter 13, verse 25 of Proverbs. So, uh, the cross-references will be up on the screen because it's a lot to go back and forth. But you will need a Bible. Um, if you need one, there's, there's some in the pews in front of you. There's stacks in the back if you... Uh, if anyone else does have, if you don't have one, raise your hand. Someone will get you a Bible. Um, we are glad you're here this morning. If you are attending this church uh, once or every week, you will need a Bible, guaranteed. Uh, so Proverbs 31, verse 25. Um, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. This is an absolute. We, we've talked about some of the Proverbs are truisms that are mostly true. This one is an absolute. Literally, sure. We, we already looked at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3, which says, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. Does he provide for his people? As Paul said in, in 1 Timothy, if we have clothes on our, on our back and we have food in our bellies, we have enough. Absolutely, the Lord provides for our basic physical needs but the greater truth here is figurative and spiritual the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite but the belly of the wicked wicked suffers want this is the guiding principle of everything we're going to look at today let's break this down for a moment because if you understand this you understand everything that's coming after the righteous who are the righteous the righteous are not people who are good in and of themselves the righteous are not people who, who pull themselves up by their own boat, bootstraps and do enough things to please God that God is impressed by them. God is not impressed by you. Let's just start there. There's nothing you can do to make the God of the universe clap and give you applause. He created all things. He created you. The righteous, those are the ones who fear him in a good way, a loving reverence, who trust him, who seek to please him, and they are righteous because his son has given them righteousness. 
They are righteous not because that they perfectly trust him, that they perfectly obey him, that they perfectly follow him, but because one perfectly obeyed and followed and trusted on their behalf and spilled his blood that they may be declared righteous. Those ones, those righteous, they have enough to satisfy what does it mean to be satisfied? Uh, there's, there's a lot of food imagery here, and there's, there's um, provision that the Lord gives in our, in our daily meals and all that. But I want you to think about for a moment, what is that feeling after you eat a feast? You eat your, your favorite meal, and you can lean back in the chair and bring your, your belt uh, buckle one, one step to the left, and uh, you can just relax, and your, your whole body is at peace because I've just been filled, and I won't be hungry for at least another half hour. <laughs> That's the satisfaction that should be going on in the souls of the righteous. That I am full. I have everything I need. I lack nothing. I'm completely content. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. What are the appetites of people but the righteous? This hunger and thirst for righteousness, this, this desire, our appetites, they are fed with things that do not pass away. They are in control. Our, appetite, our appetites do not drive us. And in the Lord... We have everything we need. We are spiritually fed. And so in this way, the righteous will always be satisfied. Because we read earlier, Jesus told us, the Lord will give you what you need. He feeds the lilies and the ravens. You'll be sat. Don't worry about material things. But for us, our satisfaction comes from spiritual things, things that do not pass away with this world. But there's another side to that. You get all of the same imagery, but this is a more crude way to say it in the Hebrew, the belly. So the righteous have appetites. The, 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 the wicked have this gluttonous, insatiable desire for their own wickedness. The belly, it's a way to talk about your, your, your base urges that are never satisfied. This is something that Paul brings up in Philippians 3, 17 through 20. That'll be on the screen, but uh, if you can turn there, turn there. Paul uses the same analogy, and look who he applies this to, those who are driven by their belly. First, I want you to see the contrast. Verse 17 of Philippians chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in me. Here's the righteous. Their eyes are on the other righteous. They, they, they walk in, in contentment because that's an opposition to the many. The few imitate the righteous. The many, verse 18, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, you can be friend with God or friend with the world. You cannot be both. If you are not in Christ, you are an enemy of Christ. If you do not find your hope and your salvation in the cross, you are an enemy of the cross. 
those people. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They serve, they bow down to, they worship their base desires. The rumblings of their spiritual stomach. This is what I want. When we get really hungry, what do we, what do we hunger for? Junk food. The sweeter and the saltier, the better. When you have no spiritual nourishment in your stomach, you are hungering for what is least nourishing to you. You serve your base desires. And Paul says, your glory is your shame. With minds set on earthly things. Because if your God is your belly, if you serve your own desires, your hope is in earthly things. Your hope is in the things of this world. But, here's the contrast here. Here's the, wor- the, the hope of the world. Here is the hope of the believer, the righteous. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's their hope. The things of this earth, their desires that are fleeting, the things that are passing away, our hope as our citizenship in heaven, our Savior who will transform our lowly bodies. Here's the good news, saints. You know these urges that you struggle with? Praise God, we won't have them always. These, these base desires from our flesh, one day our body will be transformed when he returns. Our hope is there. Our hope is in our glorified body, not in this weak vessel that fights against us every day. And he does it so that we'll be like him in his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to ourselves. Our hope is in our inheritance, but our hope is in the one who has power over all things. He'll subject the nations to himself. He has already brought the dominion of sin to nothing. And one day he'll bring the influence of sin to nothing. And so we should not be the ones who are driven by our bellies and our hope be in our present circumstances, but our hope be in what is eternal. And here's the problem. If we're hoping for satisfaction in earthly things, you will always want more. It's never enough. There has never been a person who has walked on the face of this earth who's had enough money. There has never been a person who's walked on the face of this earth who's had enough sex. There has never been a person who's walked on the face of this earth who's had enough power. Solomon had them all, and he said they were vanity. There's never been a person who's walked in the face of this earth who's found their contentment in materialism or validation. It never stops. But Paul found the secret. If you're still in Philippians, go to the next page. Verse 11, starting in the second half. For I have learned... Chapter 4, verse 11. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret. You want the secret? What's the secret to contentment? Whether it's plenty or hunger, abundance, need. What's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is not as self-centered and shallow as those stupid bracelets make it out to be. Not that the verse is stupid, but the idea is stupid. That I can climb this, this, this mountain 
that only in the abundant times Christ strengthens me. Here's the secret to Christian contentment. If you have nothing, Christ is your strength. If you have everything, Christ is your strength. And the secret is wherever I go, he'll be with me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. So what can this world or you do to me? I can do all things. Not just the fun things that make it on ESPN. All things, the difficult day-to-day things. And my job, and my family, and my struggles with myself because Christ is my strength. Not my base desires. So, when we make our plans, we're still in the first verse, we won't spend as much on each one. But, so when we make our plans, we must first examine our appetites. Do we proceed when we begin to put things in order in our lives out of a fear and reverence for the living God and a righteous contentment in him, ready to accept whatever he deems best? Or are we driven by our belly? Those self-centered cravings of indulgence. Um, You ever seen Little Shop of Horrors? Uh, If you have, our flesh, our bellies are like singing monsters. They are, they, they are ugly, but they sing a sweet song that is just for us. Feed me, Seymour, or fit, you know, put, fill your name in the blank here. They keep telling you to feed them, and I'll be happy. Feed me, and I'll be happy. Feed me, and I'll be happy. Until there's nothing left to feed him with, and he devours you. That is our flesh. That is someone whose God is their belly. They will never be content. But if your contentment is in the Lord, you will always be satisfied. Let's move on. Verse 14. I think that was the sermon. Um, We got more to go. Verse 14, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 15. Um, Here you go. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. Uh, Simple. Remember, there's three main players in Proverbs. There's the wise, the fool, and the simple. The wise is on the narrow path, uh, called by Lady Wisdom, and is following after righteousness. The fool is on the, the, the wide path who listens to the voice of, of Lady Folly. And the, the simple, by default, is on the path of foolishness, but they still haven't figured out which one makes sense. And if you look at Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly and say, I don't know, really know which, which one to choose, you're a fool. So this simple one who hasn't really got to the place of being fool yet, where they're shaking their, their, their fists at God, This simple person believes everything. They are the sucker that has been born every minute. They are the sucker that believes every sales pitch. And if you have um, looked at the news or you look at the world around you, you realize the simple are still with us. The simple believe, vote for me, and I'll give you everything for free. That sounds good, sure. The simple believe, invest here, and you'll get 10 times return in no time. The simple believe, change churches, change jobs, change spouses, change genders, and you will finally be happy. Because your hope is in this world, and your salvation is in whatever makes you feel good at the moment. They believe these lies. Don't be simple. And believe the lies 
of the world. But the prudent give thoughts to his steps. So if you're simple, if, you're, if you tend to take everything at face value and believe it where it is, or you believe these lies that either someone else or you have created for yourself, let me ask you a question. If you're not happy with where the Lord has placed you, what makes you think you'll be happier with where you place you? If you're not happy where the Lord has placed you, and you believe that these things will increase your happiness, what makes you think you know what will make you more happy than the one who created you in his image? But the prudent knows better. The prudent thinks through his steps. The prudent walks through life as you walk through a forest barefooted. One step at a time, watching out for Things you should watch out for. The bugs and the mushrooms and the mud and everything else that's on the forest floor. Every step at a time. And so this is the prudent. Planning is a good thing. And we should consider our steps as we walk. But continuing the analogy, here's the problem with planning. We can take one foot in front of the other, but we don't know what's coming over the next ridge. And so our planning only gets us so far, and we do have to make adjustments. So we give thoughts to each step. But we don't completely rely on our, our plans. We certainly don't believe everything we hear at first glance. We, we weigh it, we consider it, and we walk carefully. All right, chapter 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Here's the difference between contentment and discontentment. Contentment, you are at peace. You're the one who's satisfied, the full one from earlier. You're, you're full, of high, uh, full of life. You're, your heart is unburdened. You are content from the inside out. You are, you, are, you are tranquil in your heart. But here's the discontentment in the second half of the verse. Envy makes the bones rot. Unlike the content person, you focus on everything you don't have. And you're miserable. You have no peace, and it's eating you up inside, and it feels like your bones rot because you can never get to a place where you're satisfied. Because there's always one more carrot that you're chasing after. There's always one greener patch of grass that's just out of your reach. And you envy what you don't have or what everyone else has. Can anyone relate to that? How often have you had a tranquil heart when you are longing after something that you don't have? How often have you been in, in, in tranquility when you're so focused on what everyone else has? How peaceful is that? You know what tranquility is? Peace with God. Contentment in Him. Because whether you're in the, sh the valley of the shadow of death or bes beside streams of waters, your soul is restored and at peace. All right, let's jump into chapter 16 again. Uh, if you were here, however many weeks ago, did a week on divine sovereignty and human responsibility within the book of Proverbs. And so we looked at these nine verses from the lens of God's sovereignty. So I hope you remember everything we talked about then. Um, but if you don't, now... 
We're going to talk about how we plan with God's sovereignty in mind. And so I'll, I'll help you help bridge the gap. So when you read, first of all, verses six, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, this is a poetic section. It's a chiasm. Greek letter chi for X. You've got parallels on the outside, and it draws your attention to the middle. It begins and ends in the same place. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. So even when we plan, do we remember that God is sovereign? That our ideas are always subject to God's providence. And so I want to ask a question that I'm going to ask several times in several different ways the rest of the sermon. Do we hold our plans open-handed? If you don't know what that means, okay, God, I've got an idea. I'm going to put my ideas in my hand. But I know at any time you're the God who gives and you're the God who takes away. And if this plan is foolish or you have something better, my hand remains open and I allow you to take this out of my hand. Or are you close-handed? God, I've made a plan and this is it. Don't you dare screw with it. How many of you make plans like a little child with a new toy? Mine. We don't want to share. We think that this little car is going to be the best thing I will ever have ever. How often does that new toy uh, last beyond five minutes? Do you think that little toy or whatever you're holding on to right now is going to satisfy you beyond your childish cravings? We can make plans, but we hold them open-handed. Sometimes... The Lord directs things exactly how we thought they would happen. But that is very few and far between. Trust me, you are much better off letting the Lord plan your life than you plan your life. So, let's walk through these quickly. You know, verse 1, here's the, the, the heart of man is one, on one side, but the sovereignty of God is always going to win out. Verse 2, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We always think our plans are noble, don't we? None of us have ever made plans and said, well, this is a dumb idea, but I'm going for it anyway. We all think it's a good thing. They're noble in our eyes, what we see, but God sees right through it. All the ways of man are pure in his eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So let me ask you. When you put your plans together and think, this is what I'm going to do for the next 5, 10, 15 years of my life. I got it all planned out, God. You sit and watch. It's going to be amazing. What does he see when he weighs your spirit? What does he see when he looks straight through you? Here's simple counsel. Verse 3. Commit your, ways to, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Here you go. Here's how you do this. Lord... Here's my life. Here's my plans. Here's everything I do. I do it for you. And establish my efforts for your glory. You take it away, I praise you. You use it, I praise you. Here's how you reconcile the two. You commit your ways to the Lord, and he will be the one who establishes your plans. And we hold them open-handed. This is not let go and let God. 
this is not, I have no responsibility in this, and I'm just going to kick back, and, um, and I don't care if I'm obedient, because you know, God's going to work all of my stupidness out later on. This is not let go and let God. This is glorify God and get going. And as you go, do everything unto the glory of God. Commit it to him. Verse 4. The Lord has made everything for his, its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. If he directs everything for his purpose, even the wicked he uses for good and for his glory, you think he can handle your plans? You think he can direct the rest of your life? I think so. Verse 5, here's the, the heart of the entire poem. This is what everything's looking toward. Everyone, remember, it begins with heart, ends with heart. The heart is in the heart of this section. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Be careful of your arrogance and your plans. Be careful to think so highly of yourself that you cannot commit your ways to the Lord, that you do not trust the Lord, that you do not recognize his sovereign control over your life. Verse 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away evil. How do I stop from making evil decisions and foolish plans? Fear the Lord. Walk. As you get going, commit yourself to steadfast love and faithfulness and fear of the Lord. And if that is what your eyes focused on, you will avoid evil. But if your eyes are darting to and fro and you're looking to everything else but him, you're going to step in evil in every chance you get. Verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. I love this. Seek out to please the Lord. He'll take care of the rest, even those who hate you. But do we ask this? Before we make a decision, before we make a plan, before we set our mind on something, do we ask, does this please the Lord? Or does this please me? Is this what most glorifies the Lord? Or is this what most exalts me? Verse 8. Better is little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Do you value righteousness more than great wealth? Or materialism? Or whatever you want a lot of? Is just a little kernel of the righteousness of God, so satisfying that it outweighs dump trucks full of foolishness. I love Ecclesiastes 4, 6 here. Here's a beautiful picture of this open-handed idea. Better is a handful with quietness. This is the peace and tranquility that we've been looking at. Then two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Better is one handful of quietness and peace than two handfuls of nothing. But how often do we think that? Well, I know the Lord's given me everything I needed, but I can fill two handfuls of what may be, what might come. That one handful is better than the two handfuls where you're just chasing your tail. And it ends up to be nothing anyway. So as we think through these Proverbs, let's be honest about what our motivations are. Is it the things that please God? 
Do we find peace in them? Or are we always striving for the next bigger and better thing? Verse 9, we're back where we began. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Again, our steps are always subject to the sovereignty of God. Lord, I'm going to make plans, but I'm holding them open-handed because you're God and I'm not. Let's move on. Chapter 19, verse 2. Chapter 19, verse 2 says, Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. This is a great illustration. Some of the older texts would say, zeal without knowledge. So this, this, this energy, this desire that you have to fulfill your ideas. I've got this plan. I've got this desire, and I can do it. But if you haven't thought it out, how good is it? But the Proverbs say, no good. Let me give you a couple examples here. This is ideal for young men. And we've got a lot of young men here who I love. But I cannot count the number of times I've had conversations where you guys are all fire, no pit. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A fire keeps you warm. Fire cooks food. But if you don't have a pit to rein it in, it goes all over the place, and it'll burn your yard and your house down. This desire without knowledge, without being restrained, it's not good. Ladies, I didn't forget about you. I love that you are caring and that you are emotional, and emotions are a good thing. But when you're all... Um, when you are all emotion and no deliberation and you're in the flood of your emotions that you can't see what's going on and you fail to take a step out of the flood before you, you realize how wet you are, that's not good either. I love that Josh brought up on Wednesday night the, the archery analogy. In order to hit a target with a bow and arrow, you need desire, you need zeal, you need strength. You've got to pull it all the way back with your arm. But without knowledge, if you don't know how to hit the target, it's useless. You may shoot an arrow 300 yards into the woods, but so what? You need both. Because if you have the knowledge, if you know all of the mechanics with which to hit the target, but you've got no zeal, you've got no energy, it's going to fall flat. And so as believers, energy and zeal of youth is a good thing. But the wisdom and prudence of age helps to balance it out. Because many times as we get older, we lack our zeal and our energy. And, and on the good side, these young men who I talk to all the time, they excite me. And they energize me for evangelism and the things of the kingdom. And so in the body, we need the zeal of youth and the knowledge of age. And we bring them together so that we hit what we're aiming at together. And so when the writer goes on, desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste, his feet misses his way. If you act before you think, if you let your desires drive you, you're going to trip over your feet every time. The wise are content with learning how to crawl before they walk and learning how to walk before they run. 
The mature in Christ make sure that their desires come out of their contentment for him, not drive or determine their contentment for him. See the difference? Let's move on. Chapter 20, verse 25. Here's what doesn't make sense at first. It's simple, but it's helpful. It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy. And reflect only after making vows. Now, this makes more sense in a Hebrew context when you would make vows often and you say, I'm doing this for the Lord. But the principle applies to us. How many times have we say, rashly, well, this is good. Well, God will be pleased with this. Only after reflecting, once you've made this promise out loud. How many of us have made really big promises? God's going to be really happy with this one. Look what I'm going to do for him only reflecting on what we say afterward. Or how many times you say, this is it, and only ask for counsel afterward. This is why we spent a whole week on friends and counselors. And the abundance, as in um, Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail. And so if you plan to do this great thing for God, you think, it's, you think it's holy, you think he's going to be pleased, and you haven't talked to one mature believer about it. Or you keep talking to people until you get the one who agrees with you, and then you go off anyway. How does that turn out? So many times our urges, our first gut instinct, may deceive us. It's good to weigh it. It's good to reflect on it. It's good to think before you make promises, before you make vows. And so if you haven't listened to that sermon, go back. It's on the website. All right, chapter 21, verse 5. Chapter 21, verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Um, is this literal? Sort of. Uh, pretty close. Is it figurative? Absolutely. Literal, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. Depends on how you define abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Will that happen in this life? Maybe not. Will it happen in eternity? Absolutely. But if you're in an agrarian society, this is an absolute. Because the one who doesn't plan diligently will starve. If you don't think through the season of your crops the planting and the watering and the fertilizing and the reaping, if you don't plan your spring and your harvest well, you will be starving in your summer and your winter. For that culture, it is an absolute. Because in that culture, if you don't budget food and supplies, there's no Walmart. There's no door delivery that's going to bail you out. I think one of the things that we've lost in our society, we have lost the discipline of critical thinking. We have lost the discipline of diligently planning. Because everything's instant. We don't have to plan. The internet does it for us. There's no skills required for that. Just hit the drive-thru. I don't plan dinner. I hit the drive-thru. Do this. This will bail me out. Do this. This will bail me out. Um, This kind of came home. I have a friend who lives in Montana. And he's got a ranch. And so if you've never been to Montana, there's not much in Montana. And um, if you make the hour and a half drive from the airport to his ranch and you forget something, you don't have it. 
And so when, when he plans, he has to plan for every need on the ranch. I need this for food. I need this for the fences. I need this for the cattle. I've got to make sure I hit everything. And if I miss it, oh, well, I'll have to get it next week. It's just 45 minutes to the, to the closest convenience store, and it's not very convenient. A hot dog and a couple of candy bars. But we've lost that because we can just we can get bailed out at any moment. And often it is our impatience that gets us into trouble. Well, I want it right now. I need it right now. I don't have to plan. I just need it right now. How many times has our impatience got us into trouble? But going back to the promise here. The plans of the diligent will surely lead to abundance. What is abundance? In the eyes of the world, it's barns and vats that are filled. But in the eyes of God, it's that satisfaction that we looked at back in chapter 13. We have everything in Christ. We lack nothing because my Father gives me what I actually need. And he gives me even more. He gives me contentment in my soul. But if I'm hasty, if I'm impatient, I'm going to be impoverished because I'll never be satisfied in this life or the life to come. All right, let's move on. Chapter 24, verse 3 and 4. Here's another great illustration. Chapter 24, verse 3 and 4. And then i got to move a little quicker. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Planning requires wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Here's a great illustration. We've got several builders in this congregation. How much planning is required for a house before one brick is laid, before one drop of concrete is poured. More planning than every, everyone else in this room could even imagine. That is the wisdom. And, and so this planning requires prioritizing. Notice the, the order here. The house is built first. You must have to understand how the house even works before you can build it. Then and only then, can you fill your rooms with all the precious and pleasant riches? How many times have I seen people decorating the inside of the house before figuring out if they can even afford it? Maybe hitting a little closer at home. How many young people are so excited about the idea of getting married and you don't even understand what it means to be a husband or a wife? How often are we trying to decorate the rooms, all of the, 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 the pretty things that make us comfortable, and we haven't even planned enough for a foundation and walls and a roof yet? When we think about our plans, we must prioritize. I must understand this before this, and I must use wisdom, I must use understanding, I must use knowledge. But how many of us approach following Christ the same way? Have I considered what it really means to be in him? Or am I more worried about the external stuff, the color of the sheets and the curtains and the organization of the room? I want you to consider the words of Jesus in Luke 14. Here is where people begin to selectively edit Jesus because it doesn't fit the uh, Christian greeting card version that they're used to. But we must take Jesus in his entire context here. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. 
He didn't whisper this. He proclaimed it to a great crowd. He turns to them and says, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. He didn't leave anybody out. And yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Ouch. That's not the kind, gentle Jesus that I've created in my mind. But that's loving. Because he's greater than anyone else who could hold our affections. If you're here for the first time, he does not mean you need to hate your mother and father. What he means is that your affection toward him is so great and so deep and so committed that the way you love even your children looks like hate. Because nothing compares to him. And if you, don't, if you won't leave them behind, if you won't leave your old self behind, you can't follow me. And he uses the same building example. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you think that there's anything that even closely compares to Jesus, you don't know Jesus. If you think the cross is too difficult for you to follow Jesus, then you don't understand what he did at the cross. Unless you're willing to come after him because he went before you, you cannot be my disciple. And so here he uses building analogy, verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. This is how many people present and approach the Christian life. Oh, sure, I'm just going to follow Jesus and everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. You must count the cost. He asks you to leave everything behind because he is worth it. But also, because this life will hold on to you and it will pull you away from him and you must be able to keep even your family open-handed for the sake of Christ. He goes on, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him and comes against one with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a tall order. So many of you were in or have been or maybe are in churches that will say, just pray the prayer and everything's going to be okay. And they set you up for failure. Following Christ will cost you everything that you have, but it will gain you everything that he has. Is it worth the trade? Let's move on. Chapter 27, verse 1. Here's a big one. Uh, many of you are familiar with this. If you're familiar with the book of James, do not boast about tomorrow, Proverbs 27, 1, for you do not know what a day may bring. Here's a significant lesson to consider. How much control do you have over tomorrow? Anyone? Not much. Very little. None. Thank you. Here's what James tells us in James chapter 4. 
where he says, Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a, a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's look at verse 13 again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year year there and trade and make profit. How many of you, how many times have you made promises similar to that of verse 13? I've got these big plans. Next week, next month, next year, I'm going over here. And it's going to have this kind of profit and this kind of outcome. We've all done it. How many times have our boast of those big plans and big ideas come out exactly how we thought? All those hands that were just up a moment ago should go down. So James is saying here, do you leave your big plans open to the will of God? Willing to let them go if tomorrow is not what you thought it would be? There's a difference between planning and plans. It is good to plan. It is good to look ahead. It is good to, have, to consider your steps as we've seen along all along. Planning is not a bad thing. Plans, on the other hand, we hold loosely. We plan for the future, but we don't put our hope in our plans. This is what James is getting at, because you can't have any hope in tomorrow. That's why you hear many of us saying, we get in the habit of saying, I'll see you on Sunday, Lord willing, as James says, but say instead, if the Lord wills. Why? Because we don't know that Jesus won't come back before next Sunday. Even if we're going to lunch today, I'll see you at your house for the cookout, Lord willing. Because we don't know if Jesus is coming back before lunch. We don't know if we'll still be alive at lunchtime. Here's the other plans I hear often. I'll repent tomorrow. I'll believe tomorrow. I'll follow Christ tomorrow. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of belief. And if you are here and you have been telling yourself, I'm going to put my life in Christ's hands tomorrow. I'm going to repent of this sin that I'm holding on to tomorrow. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Because if you die, all of your great promises and your great plans mean nothing. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of belief. And Christians, we make plans. Be wise with your time. Be wise with your money. But you say, if the Lord wills. If he brings it to fruition, we praise him. If he doesn't, we praise him. A couple more. Proverbs 27, verse 7. These will be quicker. Um, But I want you to get this picture of contentment in the book. Proverbs 27, 7, one who, fill, who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. This is a perfect picture of discontentment. When are we most discontent? When our cupboards are full, right? How often have you walked into a full refrigerator and a full pantry and say, there's nothing to eat? Liars. I'm right there with you. 
How many times, husbands and wife, how many times do you guys argue about which of the 400 restaurants we have within five miles of our house are we going to go eat at? We're so full, we can't even appreciate honey. But when you haven't eaten, everything tastes sweet. I love survival shows, and I admire people who go out into the wilderness and can make a house out of nothing and a meal out of nothing because I could never do it. But when they eat this pitiful little meal, they are so thankful. They don't even have salt. It's just like weeds and squirrels and stuff that is not appealing to anyone else except for someone who's starving. Most of you don't like water. But if you live in Florida for a summer, if you're in Florida for an afternoon, water becomes your best friend. It is the most amazing thing ever because you don't appreciate it when you're sitting inside the AC. But when you're in the sun for a couple hours, that water is amazing. This displays our heart. We as Americans, we have so many good things, we can't even appreciate them. We have so many possessions that we fail to be grateful, always wanting more. When I talk to um, the pastor, Sani, in, in Pakistan and talk about what families eat and what they need to live on, they are praising God for bread and butter for lunch, praising God for rice and beans for dinner, living on a, feeding a family of four and a couple dollars and praising the Lord. Are we as content and thankful as we ought to be? Last one, verse 20, chapter 20, or yeah, chapter 27. We'll end on this note. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. Another name for um, the netherworld, land of the dead. And as, there's a simile here, never satisfied are the eyes of man. Wow. As certain as death is our discontentment. He's not far off at all. Never satisfied the eyes of man. The eyes are what we, we focus on, what we see, what we dwell on. And we think, man, that's a little harsh. My discontentment is as sure as death. How, what's death batting? A thousand. What's our contentment batting? A thousand. But if we really think about it, how long does that, think, that thing that we think is going to satisfy us actually satisfy us? the new car, the new job, even something like a soda or a coffee. Like, man, I need my coffee. If I get my coffee, I'll just be right for the rest of the day. That coffee doesn't last to the next day or the next week. We're never satisfied. We always want more, and so we've got to be careful to not let our desires control us. Because the control of desire, that's the old man. That's the one that Christ died for. That's the one that we died to. The ones who are slaves to our urges and our passions and our bellies and our sins. But we're to be like the righteous. Slaves to righteousness who find their contentment and their abundance in Christ. I love Hebrews 13 here. Hebrews 13, two simple verses, five and six. Keep your life free from the love of money. Back to money. And be content with what you have. 
For he has said, I will never leave you, never forsake you. Do you think about that? When you look at whatever is or is not in your pocket, do you remember it doesn't matter what I have in my pocket, what material blessings I have. He, my creator, my redeemer, said he will never leave me and never forsake me. Does that outweigh what you think you have on this earth? So we can confidently say, saints, here's what I want you to confidently say. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There should be a collective amen there. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? My Savior purchased me for his own for eternity. You've got nothing on him. We trust him with our salvation. But how often do we fail to trust him today or tomorrow or next week? We trust him for eternity, but we don't think he'll give us what we need next week so we take things into our own hands and we hold them so tightly that we no longer need to trust him because we trust ourselves. I want you to meditate on these things this week and for the rest of your life. And one more thing. There might be a couple of you in here who are like, but wait, Pastor, you haven't given me five steps to effective planning for the future. Nope, and I'm not going to, but I will give you one step to effective contentment that if you follow it, it will completely make you free in your planning. And many of you know this, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understandings, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. That's it. One easy step to contentment. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning because your promises are true. You have told your people you will never leave and never forsake us But if it were up to us, we would leave and forsake you in a heartbeat. We praise you that your faithfulness is not like our faithfulness. Your steadfast love is not like ours, but we can count on it. We can take it to the bank and take it to eternity. Lord, help us in our discontentment. We praise you for all the abundance that we have in this land and in this life. And forgive us when we make idols out of our stuff. And love everything and everyone else more than we love you. Help us to find our contentment and our joy and our satisfaction in you. Remind your people that in Christ we are full. We can be satisfied. We can have tranquility of heart. Because he has provided for our eternal life and our earthly life. Lord, in anyone here who is trusting in their plans, who is hoping in themselves, who is discontent, Lord, that you would open their eyes, open their hands. May they surrender and repent, turning to you, that they may find hope 
and life abundant and everlasting in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.